I just remember one day we were driving, I was driving her home from a college visit and we passed this like swanky neighborhood in Miami and she was looking at this million dollar home or multi-million, who knows how much it was worth. And she looked at me and she said, I bet you only one person lives in that house. This is Susan Chestnut of the Chestnut Law Firm. This is my podcast from foster care to family law, a child welfare focus. I was raised in the foster care system. I was a child abuse investigator for the Department of Children and Families. And now I'm an attorney practicing family law where my passion is to focus on the best interests for the children involved. In my podcast, I will be meeting with industry experts exploring the seemingly impossible scenarios that families often struggle to manage. Each episode will include insights and concepts from professionals that deal with these issues every day. I'm here with my friend, Erin Harrigan. She's currently a guardian and litem attorney. She previously was an attorney for the Department of Children and Families. She was a volunteer at the guardian and litem program in Brevard and has also been on some boards with them as well. And she's also, in addition to a multitude of other things she can tell you about, she has actually been a foster parent herself. So thank you for being here this morning, Erigan. Tell me some more. Good morning. So right now I am an attorney with the Guardian Latin Program. I am working out of the St. Lucie office at the Fort Pierce Courthouse. Before that, I was a children's legal service attorney, which is they represent DCF also here in Circuit 19. Before that, I was in Brevard County. I was teaching high school. I was a foster parent with the Brevard Community-Based Care. And I was also on the nonprofit board for Brevard, which is Friends of Children of Brevard. They do the Guardian of Litem fundraising up there. Down here, we have a similar board, Voices for Children of the Treasure Coast, and they do nonprofit fundraising for the Guardian program here. Just before that, I did civil litigation with the boutique firm in Brevard. I did NCAA compliance before that. And then in law school, I did a fellowship with the Garden of Latin program in Miami. Um, so I've been everywhere, but it all kind of filters back into just helping kids. It sure does. <laughs> because we're speaking to a very general audience, why don't you tell everyone what a guardian ad litem is? Because I know that I myself get a little bit confused between a guardian ad litem volunteer and perhaps a guardian ad litem attorney. Those words sometimes get used interchangeably as a guardian ad litem and it's not the same. So tell tell me about both. Okay, so the guardian ad litem program is this umbrella. Um, In some states they call it CASA, but what it is a team of people who go into court and advocate for the child's best interest. On my team, I have two child advocate managers who then have teams of volunteers. So for each case, it'll be me, the child advocate manager and a volunteer. And together we brainstorm what we think as a team is the child's best interest. Um, Putting that all together, the volunteer is gonna go out and talk to the child and say, hey, what do you think about this situation? They're going to bring those words back to us. They're going to go out and talk to mom and the teacher and dad, maybe a therapist. They're going to go and be eyes and ears of the court. They bring it back to us. The child advocate manager is helping um, the volunteer to understand everything. The volunteer can't go out to a visit. The child advocate manager can. They bring it all back and we brainstorm and put all the pieces together for the program 
position on child best interest. And we present that to the court. Wow. I didn't even know all those details and I should by now. So I mean, it is complicated and a lot of it is behind the scenes. And like you said, we do use guardian ad litem to mean the advocacy team, to mean the volunteer, to mean the attorney. We just say guardian ad litem. Here we are. It doesn't really get explained very well, I think, to everybody. It, internally, we know what it all means, but I think outside of the perception is a little bit confusing. Not to mention, because I do family law, that I know this, that there are different types of guardian ad litems depending on the venue that you're in. And right now, you and I are speaking exclusively, I should clarify, about the child welfare portion of the court system. And it's interesting you say that. I've actually been when I was in Brevard, I was contacted by the legal services, legal aid. They asked if I would be a guardian ad litem for a nasty divorce case that was going on. And I went out and spoke to the child and tried to bring their voice into the courtroom, which is a different guardian ad litem. Then again, we're using that phrase more as the guardian ad litem program, which is dependency based. We don't go into any other courtrooms. Our program is only in dependency and, and you will, as you just said, hear that phrase guardian ad litem in family. Sometimes you'll hear it in probate. Um, it serves a different purpose in those different arenas. So then break it down for that exact that term itself. What is a guardian ad litem? So the guardian ad litem is a lay volunteer who is the eyes and ears of the court going out to help the judge who cannot be everywhere, see what is going on. So what they do is they go out and they make observations. They will say, I saw the child and they were happy making that determination based on smiles and giggles. And when they were excited about something, they went and saw mom. And this is, I'm observing all of these things. I'm making a conclusion that they're happy. I'm telling you that, take it for what it is weigh it however you would like to, this is what I saw. That's what the guardian ad litem volunteer is for dependency. They're the eyes and ears of the court. It's a lay volunteer, no legal background, no child welfare background. It's just a person who wants to help out, who says, I can see and hear things. Here's what I see and hear. I do want to clarify what you just said though. Anybody can be a guardian ad litem, but sometimes there are people with experience in the system that, that do volunteer as guardian lineups, just like you said you do for Brevard. Right. So you could get anyone, but it's a volunteer and you don't really have to have any special, I know that they do training. We do. If you want to be a volunteer, it's just like you said, it's anybody. It can be a, the firefighter that, hey, I've got you know a couple extra minutes in my day. Let me be able to make phone calls for this child who's in care. It could be a teacher. It could be um, stay at home mom. It could be stay at home dad. It could be anybody. When you want to be a volunteer, you contact our volunteer coordinator, who's Nicole Hughes. And I'll get you guys her email. It's nicole.hughes at gal.fl.gov. And she will put you into a volunteer class. And basically what they do is they go through and they learn preliminary things like sufficient, minimum sufficient level of care. They'll go over how to enter case notes. They'll go over just basics of what our role is, what the child might be going through, why the child might be 
angry, but not actually angry and, and deciphering and, and figuring out what all of those different things mean and how to interpret, I want to go home. I want to go home. doesn't really mean that I want to go home. It means I love my mom and I wish she would make certain changes and understanding different things like that are difficult to hear when you're a lay person and you don't have a legal and or social background in this area. A lot of times the kids will say one thing, I don't want to go home. I never want to go home. What they really mean is there's this one little part about home that we could probably push in services, fix it, and then they do want to go home. So it's, there's a lot of interpreting that goes into it. And we try to teach the volunteers how to speak that language, the dependency language, not to mention all the acronyms. I want to bring some personal experience into what you just said, because a lot of people don't realize, and I know this from having been a child in foster care and I went in and out. And then from having been a DCF investigator to a DCF attorney and still being a player and hearing all the things that children say, because even though in some arenas, what children say is hearsay most of the time, why we need guardian and items exactly. But you, if you hear a child say, I don't want to go home or I want to, I only want to go home. And Bob said something similar. Children will always love their parents no matter what. Mm -hmm. And I think he was speaking from a parent, like their intentions through substance abuse, and I concur with that. But as a child, no matter what your parents have ever done to you, it's never going to be bad enough that you don't want to go home. You love your parents. You love them. So you will always say you want to go home. Plus, they want what they had before. Now, there is a time where children will realize that I can't go back. We can't fix what's broken. And I'm very pleased that in the dependency courtroom, they have as much voice as they do because I'm finding as a family law attorney, that is something that I'm having a very difficult time with because children do not have a voice in family law. They absolutely do not unless they have their own attorney, an attorney in litem and things that generally cost money. And right. a guardian ad litem in a professional capacity, I don't know if you know this, Erin, is like $5,7500. And yeah. we need it in family law because in family law, the only person who can waive the privilege between a child's therapist and the child is a guardian ad litem. And sometimes that's what the guardian ad litem gets hired for is just to figure out whether what the kid said anybody could listen to and that's terrible a child's voice should always be heard you would you agree absolutely and in fact when i was contacted by legal services in brevard to serve as a guardian ad litem in a family law case one of the reasons they reached out to me is because at that point i wasn't practicing law i was teaching law in high school and i was teaching history in life in high school I didn't have the same hours that an attorney might have. And so they specifically reached out to me because they knew that I could dedicate. So basically they reached out to me and they're like, hey, we see that you're a member of the bar, that you're not practicing right now. Do you have time to go and talk to this kid and, and have a voice for him in family law? And it was a very unique situation. Like you were saying, it's, it shouldn't be unique, but it is a unique situation. Usually you have to pay for those services. But because I contracted through legal aid, I was able to volunteer some time to them. And it really mattered. It was a nasty divorce. This kid was getting caught in the middle of it. And I was able to bring his voice to the courtroom, which was really, it was great and it was valuable. And you absolutely identified a need for the system. 
Did you see it when you were experiencing it? Because as an attorney in the guardian and line program, I know you see the difference. And so I, I don't imagine that you participate in family law much at all because you're part of the guardian and line program, right? The only time that we really even go in, not, and we don't go into family law, sometimes pri private dependencies will be filed. And you can tell when they are filing a private dependency for the benefit of the child and when they're filing a private dependency because family law is so backed up. And there is a distinction there. And the distinction is what you were saying and whether they want the child to have a voice and whether they're going to give that child a voice. That's the big distinction of private dependencies and that whole avenue of whether or not they survive in dependency court. It's I'll be honest with you, here's something, and, and maybe you can answer this because you also have your previous DCF attorney experience as well. I'm having a very difficult time in family law, and so much so that the first thing that it comes out of an opposing attorney's mouth is, well, DCF didn't, DCF didn't, DCF didn't, it ain't that bad. I've even had judges, I've, and more than once and from more than a different person say that's child abuse this is not what we're here for we're here to basically divide this child between the parents and with like a song it, and it's very frustrating because what I find having been a DCF investigator and a DCF attorney mm -hmm. myself and a parent attorney and this with all the love and respect in the world because I'm friends with a lot of the people that are still in those venues, but I feel like relying on a protective parent to bear the burden emotionally by themselves, period, because family law is pro se, you're making the person do it alone. And that only just occurred to me and makes me wanna cry. You're forcing the parent, the protective parent, as if they're somehow more capable of the legal system than the other parent to be the one that has to go and do the family court filings to change it and all of those improve their entire case. It's a DCF investigation. Every time I go into family court and I have to prove abuse, abandonment, or neglect against another parent, I literally have to take the entire dependency courtroom and recreate it in family law just to prove to the judge, but never is the child even allowed to speak. And nobody's allowed to say what the child said and to ever get to the bottom of what's really happening and how is a pro se person ever supposed to do that and i don't know aaron is that a legislative thing you seem to be more educated in this type of stuff than me so is the answer which is what all attorneys answer everything which it is, is yeah it depends so part of that gets back to a philosophical how much power do you want the government to have how much of a role do you want the government to come in and say you can do this you can't do that you can do this you can't do that this is how you parent this isn't how you parent and how much of it is left up to us as individuals to decide this is how i want to parent and and this is not how you parent so just a basic example i personally and am, am against banking i just find that to not be the appropriate way to parent that's me personally if the government were to take on my personal view we would have child abuse up the wazoo because so many people do, I'm gonna pop you in the butt, I'm gonna whatever. And my opinion of what child abuse should be 
if the government took that over, it would just be, it would be too invasive. And I, I recognize that I'm allowed to have a different opinion than my sisters or my neighbors or my cousins, and everybody's allowed to have, to some extent, a different opinion on what's appropriate. I think that when you get to family law cases, if you've called in the abuse report and said, hey, this is happening, this is not okay, and they haven't done anything, and it, it happens again, and you call again, and you say, hey, this isn't okay, and this is happening, if you keep calling and they keep saying this is nothing, then you might need to look at it and say, listen, am I calling because somebody's spanking their kid and that's really not something the government should be getting involved in? Or is it something that DCF should be looking into and maybe you need to explain what's happening in a different way to your abuse report? Because I don't know if Mr. McCarlin went over this, but the investigators get the case after the abuse report is called in. So you have to make an abuse report. You can't just call up and say, hey, Mr. McParlin, we got some problems. You need to send some investigators out here. They can't go and investigate unless an abuse report is made. So if the protective parent, unfortunately, what they need to do is call the abuse line and say, hey, I've been deemed protective parent. I need some support out here. I need somebody to come and, and help me. Here's what's happening. Here's the child abuse. Here's the neglect or the abandonment. But yes, I'm speaking about those parents who have tried it that way. And because the department has deemed that the, the risk is low enough because of the protective parent that they're not going to file in court and they're not going to force the other parent to get help for that alcohol problem because really, Aaron, what I'm talking about is when one parent breaks court orders in family law to protect the other, to protect their child from the other parent, but DCF says, you got a protective parent right there. They're doing what needs to be done. We don't want to get involved. I'm telling you that you're leaving the parents holding the bag. And you can only be as protective as you're capable of with your resources. And not everybody knows the system like you and I are talking about. Absolutely. And that I think that is a flaw in the system. I would also caution fixing that flaw. I don't know exactly what the answer is. Because if I did, everyone would be doing it that way. But I think that it comes down to how much involvement do you want the government to have? Do you want the government to come in and say, you drink alcohol, you can never have custody of your kid, you can never visit, you can never whatever, or do you want parents to be able to decide whether or not that's okay? And I don't think there's a good answer for that. I wish that there was like almost a middle court. Me there's too. dependency, and then there's family law, and then there's this middle court where, as you're saying, protective parents need appointment of counsel, because that's one thing that you benefit from independently. We don't get from. that in family law. Parents get appointed counsel. It's based on financial ability, but most parents qualify. And if not, they get a list of Susan Chestnut or Chris Hicks or whoever else can take appointment. They can seek out appointments, but they can get counsel from these as private parent counsel. And that is something that is huge in family law that they don't get. So dependency, you get appointed counsel to help navigate you through this system. I do. I think there needs to be like a middle court system, the family dependency court system. I think so um, too. But you know what? They do have that. It's called Unified Family Court. Mm -hmm. I wish they would 
do it more. Maybe that's the answer. I'm just going to start filing lots of those and see what happens. Right. You I mean, but that depends on DCF filing something, and that's right. where the flaw is. You're right. That's what I was going to say. The unified joins the cases, but you can't file into unified family court. Mm -hmm. um, I think that might, maybe that is the fix to our flaw, but it is a flaw um, because that appointment of counsel, the parent counsel, as frustrating as I find them sometimes, they are absolutely <laughs> necessary. And they do, they help because these parents would be lost without it. Especially when you get like these parents who just need support. And I remember one of our cases that we had, the mom had little kids and she was just, she was overwhelmed and she had a substance abuse issue. And she basically, in the most loving way, handed her kids to DCF and said, please help me. I don't have resources to help myself to help my kids. And she got the support she needed. She entered into the program she needed. She benefited and she was reunified and off they went in complete success of dependency. And that was amazing. And, and if she didn't have an attorney walking her through everything and explaining why you need to do X, Y, and Z, that would have been a termination and it would have been really sad because she clearly loved her kids. She just needed help. But mm -hmm. dependency is supposed to do. Most of the time it does. When I was talking to Bob yesterday, we were talking about substance abuse because it's, for mm -hmm. me personally, in my experience, it's been the hardest, it is tough. the hardest maltreatment to manage with a parent, to be honest. But so let's talk about foster care because we've talked about being a guardian ad litem and you have such unique experience. I'm so excited to get to talk to you and have people share it with me. Tell me what you want to talk about your experience as a foster parent and maybe you can help encourage some others. Yeah, my desire to be a foster parent actually goes back to law school. Um, when I was in law school, we had a volunteer program called Educate Tomorrow, and I don't know if it's still funded and still works or not, but when I was there, what it was mentoring kids who were aging out of foster care. And so I was um, a volunteer for Educate Tomorrow, and the the youth that I was assigned to mentor, we, you know, filled out college applications and we filled out job applications and we talked about different avenues and what she could do when she was aging out. I just remember one day we were driving, I was driving her home from a college visit and we passed this like swanky neighborhood in Miami and she was looking at this million dollar home or multi-million, who knows how much it was worth. And she looked at me and she said, I bet you only one person lives in that house. And it just, it hit home to me that like these people, her family is living in a one room with a room bedroom with people living in the living room and sharing everything. And she just been a very innocent, there's empty bedrooms in that house and there are kids in need and that house probably has one occupant in it. And she's probably not wrong. Anyway, that just kind of hit home for me. And so I'd always had that in the back of my mind. And when I was in Brevard, I was teaching high school and I was living in a home that had three bedrooms. And I was like, you know what? I have empty bedrooms and there are kids in need. And so I went through the classes to get um, certified as a foster parent. And I always knew that I wanted to be a home for teens. They're really hard to place. 
Um, there, it's even harder to play sibling groups of teens. And so I wanted to open up my home and have as many sibling groups come to me and stay together as possible, even though I only had two empty rooms. And it was just, it, it worked out perfect for me. They contacted me before I even got certified. So just back up. I have, I had one dog at the time and I have two now, but at the time I had one dog and he's very protective and he caused a little bit of delay in my home study. So they had to make sure that he was going to be okay with the kids and everything. And he turned out to be amazing with them, but so he caused delay in my home study being completed. So I actually was contacted before I became certified and they said, listen, we've got these two teens and we are hoping that we can place them in a home right now. They're in a group home, which is code for orphanage. And so I went and met with them and they said they wanted to come live with me. So the home study was wrapped up. They came in and visited the home. They met my dog and wanted to come visit. And so they came to stay with me and case managers are so overwhelmed and I don't wish their job on anyone. It's emotionally draining. It is too many cases. You can't pay someone enough to just magically invent time in their day to do all the stuff that they're expected to do. So it turns out that a couple of weeks later, probably a month, honestly, they had a younger brother. And I guess I should tell people who don't know, teens don't always talk to you. <laughs> um, so it was one of those things where they were living in my home and we weren't like cold to each other, but they weren't like spilling their life stories to me. Mm. It was fine because I knew that teens don't do that. and. I wanted to be respectful. They came to me and wanted to talk. Of course we did, but I didn't push them and I wasn't like, tell me everyone's name and tell me everything, whatever. I just went at their pace. So there was a little bit of a goof up in that we found out later, I found out later, they obviously knew. I found out later that they had another sibling in foster care. So they approached me and asked if they could bring the other sibling into my home. The other sibling was six. So not exactly what I had in mind, but it worked out perfect. The teenagers came in and then a couple of months later, um, my little buddy came in. He and my dog were best friends. They would dig holes in the backyard and have adventures, but it was really great. And we talked about their dad um, went through substance abuse counseling. And for the older kids, we talked about whatever they wanted to talk about with it, but you know how substances, you can't just decide you're not going to take them anymore, that he needed some help and he's willing to get the help. And that's amazing. And we need to support him in that. And it's not like he is now at this point choosing to use the drugs at some point. Yeah. He chose to use it and it got him on a little path and whatever. But at this point he can't just wake up in the morning and say, I'm not going to do that anymore. He needs some help and he's willing to go get that. And we need to really support him. And for um, the little guy, we basically talked about how dad had to go to the doctor. And the doctor was going to really help him to have, I think we talked about how sometimes dad gets angry for no reason. And that was really going to help him because he wasn't going to be just up and down anymore. The doctor was really going to help him stay away from things that made him angry. And we tried to talk it down to a six-year-old level of, we need to be excited for dad who's going to the doctor. It does mean we're not going to talk to him for a few weeks, but we really, we called him the night before he went away and, and I remember trying to coach the little guy to be like, Hey dad, I'm so proud of you for going to this doctor. And I hope that you stay there Aww. for a really long time and get all the help you need. 
and I can't wait to see you when you get back, but I want you to stay as long as you need to stay and, and, and we'll be okay and we'll be here when you get back and all those things that we, I don't know, it's hard to explain all this stuff to a little kid. I was um, just, I was just thinking that the way that you explain that has never, ever occurred to me. And I've had to give this, teach this <laughs> lesson to my clients over and over again with words and I've never had it put that way. I tell my clients I'm proud of them because it is incredibly hard. And when yeah. you know the cycle of substance abuse and that they're going to fall off at a predicted mm-hmm. point in time and there's not yeah. really the chance for that, you, you don't really get many second chances. So it was, it was hard. It got real violent when he was under the influence with weapons and just it was really bad. And so we tried to kind of talk about how him going to the doctor was really going to help with all of that and he was doing this for himself but he really wanted to be a better person for the kids and yay dad's going to the doctor and obviously it was residential we didn't talk to him for a few more weeks and mom had her own just self-esteem things she didn't find value in herself enough to remove dad from the situation she had a paramour boyfriend that she prioritized over the kids. So she just had a lot of self-esteem issues that she needed to work on. She went to counseling and, and she made huge improvements, but just little things. One time I went and dropped, I was supposed to drop all three of them off for a visit with mom. And she comes to the car and she says, I think I'm just going to have a girl's day today. I'm just going to take the girls. And of course my little guy's face just fell and he was like, why doesn't mom love me and whatever. And we, I let the girls go. I, I did tell mom just, her and I, that this was not a good idea and this wasn't happy for everybody. But we let the girls go and, and they did that. And I actually called my dad and my stepmom and I was like, hey, do you guys want to go to the zoo? Because we've got to go do something now because his life just fell apart. Um, so we went to the zoo and on our Aww. way to the zoo, we talked about how mommy doesn't not want to visit with you. She's just going to do some girl things and you don't want to do those things and, and that's fine. And we're going to go have an adventure and you'll go have an adventure with mommy later. And I always tried to play up their relationship. I think that's the right thing to do as a foster parent is to encourage that. But I also did it because I knew that these kids were going home. Mm -hmm. Eventually, this was not a case that was set up for termination. It wasn't, obviously things can always go backwards, but if things went forwards and it might take a little while, this was always going to be a reunification. So I always tried to play up like, mommy does not want to visit with you she wants to visit with you she just wanted to have some girl time today so we'll figure it out we'll find a time for you and mommy to visit another day we're going to go to the zoo we're going to have a great time it's going to be fun we'll figure it out and he bought into all that and it was good but it's hard sometimes to not see all the negative in parents that get wrapped up in dependency for me it is mind-boggling that you would have three kids and once a week visits and not want to see all three of them every single week. To her, it made perfect sense. I want to have a girl's day. And it's just, you need to understand that they're coming at all of this from a different place. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she's working on who she is as a person, as a mom, as in a relationship with someone else. It's really hard not to judge, but you, you can't. And, and you have to make sure that you're always talking positive around the kids. And that's hard because sometimes you just are frustrated, but you have to always take a step back and remind yourself 
that you're talking to these children and they're processing all of this as well. So I feel like I got off on a bunch of different tangents. You didn't, but, but you said a few things that I want to follow up on. Okay. Yeah. It wasn't a tangent. It was a beautiful story. But you have some insight that I don't think an average foster parent would have of the system and how it works and the likelihood of reunification. And I think you were able to identify that as part of your management of those children's emotions with for lack of a better way to put it so i believe that a fear that i know for a fact that when i was fostered i would hear the foster parents say and i i accidentally laughed when you were talking about how hard it is to place teenagers because I know that for sure, I almost went out of county when I went back to foster care when I was 17. It was the beginning of my senior year. I laughed at what you said because it is the honest truth that teenagers are very difficult because they've got 17 years of most likely failed parenting. And you, and then one person for one year is supposed to manage all of that by themselves. But I remember hearing from foster parents of different types, a lot of them only wanted babies. One of the fam one of the people that fostered me, they very much only wanted tiny little babies. Then one foster parent that I was with, they absolutely did not want little tiny little babies because they didn't want to get that attached to that child. And mm -hmm. it sounded to me when you were talking that you were able to manage your own emotions because of some of your insight. Can you elaborate on what we're talking about now? Yeah, so... I did go into it not necessarily thinking that, oh, I'm going to get some kids and I'm going to adopt them. And I think that a lot of foster parents get into it, which is great. And I don't want to discourage these foster parents at all, but a lot of them go into it thinking they're going to build their own family, which is amazing. And we need those people because unfortunately, a lot of these cases do go termination. And I shouldn't say a lot. Some of these cases do go termination. But I went into it wanting to be a temporary home for these kids to stay as long as they needed to and feel love and support and then go back to a fully supported home. I, I wanted to be that temporary, however long is necessary person for these people while their parents were working on different things, getting the services they need and building themselves up so that they could be a family again. So I do, I think I went into it with a different mentality, but I also think that teenagers are tough, not even from the way they are. And again, you, you hit it on the head. If somebody's coming into care at night at 17 or 16 or 15, they've probably had 15, 16, 17 years of um, not great parenting and they've internalized all of that. It's all been their fault. It's all because they've done something wrong. It's all because of something they did, which is completely not the truth at all. Mom leaves from time to time because she likes her para more than me. Well, that's not, those two things are very separate. She loves you a whole lot. She has self-esteem issues. And if she doesn't go be with the paramour, he's gonna leave. And then that's gonna be on mom. And of course this kid is internalizing his mom doesn't love me as much or substances. Mom loves substances more than me. Again, that's, those are two separate things that, that a child shouldn't have to, and unfortunately does in some circumstances process. And without, again, the supports that dependency tries to provide, it's 
almost impossible to process all that because how would you know that mom loves me dad loves me if they're not there mm-hmm. if they aren't showing it well um, or if you can only talk to them once a week you can only speak to them once a week how are you supposed to know that and I think the other reason it's really hard to place teens is because of probably social media or media in general people think that teenagers are going to come in and steal their tv and murder their dog and stab you in the night none of those are true (laughs) some of those are true Erin I saw it myself I saw it myself and it's Sometimes they don't believe there's any other way. And I have, I get appointed as attorney in Lightums over kids in foster mm-hmm. care. And you bet your, you bet that one of the first things I tell those kids is, hey, you're looking at a foster kid. So don't give me any excuse as to why you think any of this is your fault or going to hold you back or be something right. that in two years you're not done with. It's, there are those kids, but I, I understand what you're saying. That's not the general that's not how kids normally are, but you're right. At 17, you think that everything is your fault. And so what can you say to anyone? The email that you gave earlier, was that a foster care email or was that a guardian of the litem email? So Nicole Hughes does our volunteer recruitment and she would be the point person if anyone is interested in volunteering their time. And there's a bunch of different ways you can volunteer your time. Obviously with COVID, things are just bizarro world right now, but you can volunteer to be a child advocate or one of the things that we normally do, although right now it's just a kind of in a different way is school supply bags. So we need people to volunteer to come stuff bags with school supplies that we then hand out to the kids or we have a big holiday drive where we have to sort the toys or clothes by different age groups, appropriateness, and then also disseminate all of it to everyone. In addition to people who want to go out and advocate for these kids and be their voice and say, Your Honor, I've talked to this child. She really wants to go home. We think that would be great. However, we need mom to engage in substance abuse treatment first. And we need to see how mom does with that. And if mom can provide a safe and stable home, 100%, we wanna support this child's wishes, but best interest right now is that this child stay in the placement where they're at while mom works on services a little bit longer. And that's a voice that anybody can give. I would be remiss if I didn't say that the more help that you give, the more likely you are to end up in court, but- I think you, because I'm having this conversation with you and I am the honest person that I am, I'd like for you to point out the time commitments of the examples that you gave because to be the voice for the child is much more of a commitment. And I know that as a matter of fact, just as you do. And that generally, even if you're a lay person, if you're a doctor who is doing it because you want to help, it will interfere with your schedule. There are, not to discourage anyone, but this is the reality of the situation dependency court is a court and you're often required to participate in the court proceedings. So can you give a a generalized amount of commitment? Yes. So the guardian ad litem program, different than case management and investigations, we are appointed typically at shelter, although sometimes it's later on in the case. So our volunteers aren't going out with investigators and deciding whether or not the child is safe. It comes to us after that. So if 
the report is made, investigations goes out, they determine if services can support the family without going to court. If we have to go to court, we decide whether or not the child is safe in the home. If the child comes out of the home and is placed with a family member or a neighbor or in foster care, at that shelter, typically the guardian ad litem program will be appointed. And at that point, a volunteer will be assigned to the case. The volunteer will then go out and meet with the child and the parents and teachers and everybody. While that is happening, I would say that commitment is probably a total of maybe two hours tops. A week? A day? No, I would say probably, so between the shelter and the dependency, it's probably like a month or so. And you probably are going to do all of that in a month. So maybe two hours that month. Okay. In the beginning. All right. And then once the dependency happens, if the court finds, yeah, these kids are dependent and mom and dad need services and, and kids need services and, and we're going to support this family so we can get them back together. After that point, we have monthly visits to make sure that we have eyes and ears on the kids and make sure that we understand what progress is being made. And so once a month, you'll go out um, and visit the kids. Right now, we're doing virtual visits. So we're just having like this, a Zoom or a Skype or a Facebook, what's it called, FaceTime? Yeah. Visit with the kids and you're just, you're talking to them. Like we're talking now, if it's an infant, you're just putting eyes on the infant, making sure that the infant's okay. Talking to caregivers, the minimum is a conversation. So if, if you were uh, my, the foster child assigned to me, I would, call you right now we're just calling and say hey susan how's everything going how is your placement doing is there anything you need is there anything you want me to tell the court and just have these conversations and, and try and build a rapport it's not all about court part of it is just mentoring these kids if they're infants i will put eyes on the baby and then i'll talk to the caregiver and say hey are you being supported as a caregiver how are our visits going are you noticing anything before or after visits is there anything I need to let the court know? I, I would say that the once a month visits are probably between 30 to minutes to an hour. And then depending on who else you talk to, again, it might add to that. And then every six months we do have judicial reviews and that is the opportunity for everyone. But in our situations, the volunteer come to court and say, this is what I've observed. So I talked to Susan and she is, she's happy in her placement, but she really wants to go home. She really wants to have more visits with mom, which is a great opportunity for me to then say, is there anyone else who can supervise visits for mom so that Susan's wish of seeing mom more often can come to fruition? Because case management is so overworked, typically the court will only order the department to supervise one visit per week. So if foster child Susan's mom or dad doesn't have another supervisor, they're only visiting once per week. So if foster child Susan comes to me and says, I wish I could see mom more often. One of the things that I as a guardian volunteer can do is say to mom and dad then, hey, is there anybody else that can supervise your visits? Do you have someone from church or work or a neighbor who can supervise your visits because foster child Susan would really like to see you more often. And I can tell the court that. And then everybody else, the case manager and the parent attorneys 
they can all be looking for these extra people. And it's one way that I can advocate for the child. And I'll put a, together a report and I'll file that with the court. One of the for good and for bad things about a judicial review is that hearsay is allowed. So if I have a very busy schedule and my judicial review has been set for 10, 15 in the morning, and that just doesn't work for my work schedule, my child advocate manager can go and speak for me mm-hmm. and say, I staffed with my volunteer. And one of the things that Erin noticed is that while Susan's happy in her placement, she really wants to see mom more often. What are some things court that we can do to have that happen? Maybe we can figure out a way for mom to have visits at the school or Susan's really involved in cheerleading. Can they, can mom go to her cheer competitions or just different things that if we don't have that person speaking up for the child, then nobody's going to touch on it and it's going to stay one visit per week. But if we have this volunteer who's saying, listen, we have this problem. Susan wants to see her mom more. Susan's mom only has one supervisor and she can only do it once a week. So we need to brainstorm other ways to get this child to see mom. And it's amazing to see what can happen when you have somebody speaking for the child. The older children can actually come to court and speak for themselves, which is also really great. Some of them are shy, which I mean, makes perfect sense, but the volunteer can do that. And the other thing the volunteer can do is say, listen, foster child Susan really wants to see her mom more often. And I want the court to be made aware of that. However, because of the uh, ongoing substance abuse and mom's inability to remain clean at all, she can't stay clean for a day. It's really just not a good environment for foster child Susan to see her mom like that. She wants to see mom more often. As a program, we're telling you we don't think it's in her best interest to see mom more often right now. And so that's, it's like a, it's not conflicting. It's just, it is the way it is. Our job is to report what the child wants and also to give the court a position on whether we think that's in the child's best interest. So let me Um, interject here with you, Erin, because I think what got me so interested in child welfare was that exact moment where I'm, I don't know what it is about me. I know my childhood was pretty much terrible, but I wanted to hear it from the horse's mouth. I didn't trust anybody. And I went to court every single time I was allowed to. And that's, I told the story, I don't know if I told it recently on a podcast or to someone else where I slammed my hands down because they kept calling me the child. And I don't know if I've told you this story either, but I won't go into it in case I have talked about it before, more than to say that I got really pissed off that they kept calling me the child as if I wasn't sitting there with a name. And I said, my name is Susan. And you're talking about me like I'm not here. And literally, I was so mad because it was my life and I felt like I didn't have any input. And I realized when I slammed my hands down on the table and I said, no, do not send me back home to my mother. And I said all of those things. That was the point where I realized that children have to have a voice. And that was what I was going to do in the system. And right now I've identified with you today. You Mark my words, Aaron, I will figure out a way for children to have a voice in family law. I swear to God, because 
it is not fair what happens to them. And I understand the judge's position and I understand the law on it. But why is it okay in this courtroom and it's not okay in that courtroom? And why is it encouraged? It's even written into the statute that the child has the right to be present at every single hearing and the judge has to make a finding that it's not in the child's best interest that they weren't present at the court hearing and they have to inquire as to why the child wasn't there. So you've given me a new venue of passion. You can hear how upset I am about it. (laughs) I'll get in trouble. (laughs) No, you won't. You won't get in trouble because it it has nothing to do with you or your agency. It has to do with the way that the system is structured that we we don't give children the same rights in different venues. And I understand that parents have a right to parent their child. And I have been every one of these things just like you have almost. And so I I see those two competing rights, but I also believe that judges only get a small snapshot of what's actually happening in a child's life, a very small one. And to not give the child an opportunity to give their little small snapshot, I think is robbery. I do. My daughter's 11 years old and she's been signing her own name and voicing her own opinion since two years ago in school when she told me she filled out a piece of paper at school that said, I don't feel safe here and put her name on it and said, I hope the principal comes and talks to me. And I said, well, that's not how you make friends. (laughs) And I thought to myself, gee, I wonder where she gets it from. Because she said, I put my name on there because I hope he comes and talks to me about it. And I thought, look at this little thing that I'm raising. But it is not a double-edged sword, but it is difficult sometimes because foster kids do have so many court dates. We try not to involve them in everything because they're getting pulled out of school every day or maybe they're getting pulled out of their extracurricular that they it's their one constant and can we just let them go to piano practice so we do ask the children if they want to be I know present. you do I know and sometimes they they don't we also try now I'm bad about it but I think part of that is the way that I compartmentalize everything because it is so emotionally draining one of the things when I was with the department I do typically tend to drop everybody's name and I'll say the mother, the father, the child, the youth. It's an old habit that is hard to break. And, and it's, and, and, you know, it's a good point because they aren't just these papers and they aren't just these files. It is hard, I will tell you, from the case management investigation and attorney side, though, to see everybody as a person because how could a person do that to a a youth or a child and that is it's just so hard to see that they but think about it Erin think about it though Mm -hmm. the most of it is substance abuse being mistreated by others and some form of neglect and all of those things have different intent I believe than actual physical abuse of a child or sexual abuse of a child and so I really do believe that they are people to me. They, every single one of them, I love dependency. My goodness, I love it. If every one of my clients, and that's why I think that maybe I'm so upset about family law because I think that they they want to say that they're concerned about the best interest of the child, yet they're only allowing in certain tiny bits and pieces right. and not getting full pictures. But One of the things about the Guardian program that I am learning, I will say that I'm bad about it, but I am learning, in our reports, 
we don't use the mother, the father, the child. We use names. I've um, noticed that about it, your reports. It, it's it's much more personal, that, like a they're actually a part of the story instead of an right. outsider looking in. It reads that way. I appreciate that yeah. about your reports. And that is one thing that, you know, different from how I was, how I practiced with the department and how I practice now with the guardian is we do put their names in and we do, you can tell a report that I tweaked and a report that my child advocate manager tweaked because mine is very unemotional. <laughs> Theirs is, hey, this is, hey, Sally's having a hard time and we need to mm-hmm. accept that and see how we can fix it. And the other thing too is I try to edit when we do go generic, the child and the youth and the teenagers, I try to young adult or youth or some kind of, can you have some encouraging buy-in, I guess, because a lot of teenagers have been in the system for so long that they've given up almost the opposite of what you said. Instead of wanting to be at every court hearing, they're done. Yeah, but I was done. I went to every court hearing, so I made sure I never got put home because the one of the other things about DCF is good for you that the goal is reunification every single time. But I do believe in straight TPR sometimes. Don't get me wrong. Mm -hmm. I sure do. Skip dependency, go all the way. There are those cases. Yeah. And we definitely have them. And those ones, the parents don't get case plans and they don't get services. And we don't try to fix the family. We say, listen, this came into us. It's not fixable. There's nothing we can do to help this parent. And there is something we can do to help these children or these youths or whatever it is. And and that is to help them get out of this home and never have to go back. Mm -hmm. And I appreciate all you guys do to help them go back. I know. And it's hard because everybody has an opinion. God gave one to everyone, didn't he? And, uh (laughs) uh-huh. And the other day I was on a dependency hearing out of West Palm beach. And I'm not exaggerating to you, Aaron, there were 22 people on this one judicial review 22 people of course that was the third part of three hours it's so far nine hours there's 22 people involved in this and i can't imagine being a judge and listening to 22 different people's opinions and (laughs) i just can't imagine being a judge at all do they have to say what do you mean their witnesses what kind of people are they they're they're traditional people that have multiple children with multiple different parents mm-hmm. and multiple caregivers and multiple counselors and different case managers in different states and things get very complicated sometimes, don't they? Very quickly. Yes, they do. So any parting words that you'd like to give? Any is there some contact information for you yourself yeah, that you'd so be willing to share? This is just in my handwriting and I can send this to you. I don't know if it comes I up want you to read it because this is a, a podcast. Okay. Oh a podcast. Okay, perfect. So <laughs> I for the Child Academy. <laughs> You're so cute. Um, I know all about podcasts, don't worry. I am for the Child Academy is, if you just Google it, it, it's a library, I guess. It's an online library of all kinds of different things that you don't have to be a volunteer and you don't have to be involved. If you are just interested in minimum sufficient level of care, if you're interested in the case flow, how it comes from report to TPR, if you're interested in advocating for education, that's something we didn't even touch on today, but that is a huge 
issue for dependency. Kids get moved from one foster home to another and all of a sudden they're in a different school zone and they're in a different school and they're in a different classroom and you wonder why these kids can't graduate on time. So anyway, I Am For The Child Academy is a huge resource. If you are interested in volunteering in the Treasure Coast, Nicole Hughes, it's N-I-C-O-L-E dot H-U-G-H-E-S at G-A-L dot F-L dot G-O-V. She is our recruiting coordinator and Voices for Children is our nonprofit. So if you don't have any time at all, but you could help with fundraising or you have ideas for fundraising and you want to help us with that, voicesforchildrenotc.org is our nonprofit. Their phone number is 772-785-5804. And I think just the last thing that I'll leave you guys with is in COVID, we're seeing a decline in the abuse reports that are made, which sounds like a really good thing, except that I think pretty much as a system, we're a little bit nervous that it's because these kids are homebound and nobody sees what's happening. So if you have any concerns and you don't have to feel like you're tattling, you can just say, listen, there's some kids that live next door and I haven't seen them in a few days and I'm a little bit worried about them. Or there's some kids that live next door and I happen to see traffic in and out all day long and I'm concerned about drugs or it could just be anything. They'll go look into it. And if you call and what you say is, hey, there's kids playing in the front yard next door and there's no parent outside, they're going to be like, listen, you got way too much time on your hand and that's going to go nowhere <laughs> and that's fine because you called and you said something. But anyway, my point is, is if you are concerned about kids or you see something that you think is a problem, there's an abuse hotline and it's 800-962-2873. And if you can be eyes and ears for these kids, that would be amazing. The the shortcut for that is 1-800-96-ABUSE. Oh, there you go. Uh-huh. I always found it difficult to spell words on my phone and I know that makes me just weird in all kinds of no, ways. No, <laughs> that's because we have iPhones now and not the little digital, little push button ones that we had before. Or not digital, the opposite of that. So I miss you, Erin. I wish I got to see you more. And I'm so grateful for you. This conversation has warmed my soul. You're a beautiful human. You really are. And I just we have more work to do. It's not perfect. You lit me another fire this morning, but I appreciate your friendship and your willingness to share, even share your foster care experience as a foster parent very much. So I'll see you later. All right, I'm good. Thanks for listening to this episode of From Foster Care to Family Law, a Child Welfare Focus. I hope that this interview provided some valuable insight to help you deal with your unique circumstances. If you found this episode useful, please share this with friends and family that could benefit from this information. If you have a family law need or related matter, please contact me directly and I will be happy to help you.